You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. Happy Freedom Friday, and thanks to all of our listeners who have joined us for this episode of Members of the Jury. I hope that all of you jurors out there are having an amazing start to 2022 and that you're ending your week with some positive vibes. If you aren't, hopefully listening to this outstanding jury trial breakdown will bring you some of those positive vibes. I have a quick announcement. Before I had mentioned that I was thinking of transitioning this show into a video podcast. However, after some deep thought and reflection, I decided that I'm not going to do that. This show isn't about me or my guests. It's about the mission and the goal of justice and reform, and I want to focus on that. But you can see some additional video content on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us on TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram at Members of the Jury. The theme for today's episode is storytelling. You see, one of the biggest challenges facing criminal defense attorneys is that we don't initially control the narrative. By the time a case comes across our desk, there has already likely been a reporting party that the police then investigated, and then that claim was confirmed by a district attorney's office by way of formal charges. But there lies the rub. Because often enough, the story that the reporting party give is skewed and lacking critical details. It therefore becomes our and that by that I mean the defense attorney's job, to retell the story, or in the words of my late constitutional professor, reframe the narrative. That alone can be the difference between a not guilty or guilty verdict. It's what separates exceptional trial lawyers from the rest. All defense attorneys should strive to be great storytellers, to have the ability to understand who their audience is, and to control the emotions in the courtroom through their advocacy. A good story beats out a factional regurgitation almost every day of the week, and it is better for the jurors. Because jurors like stories. It's helpful to them to have better attention and to gain a better understanding of the different perspectives and legal complexities. Finally, being a good storyteller helps the lawyer, the case, and even the client relate better with the jurors, which we then hope leads to a just verdict. Fortunately, our guest today did all of the above when she took her matter to the box. Here to tell her story about a fantastic jury trial is Deputy Public Defender Marlena. Marlena, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Hi, everyone. My name is Marlena, and I've been practicing for about five years. This was uh, my first felony trial. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. It's, uh, we always love hearing these processes and stories play out. And, you know, you dropped the big F word, which is felony, where we obviously know the consequences are much more intense and much more severe. 
So right away, uh, before we get deep into the case, why don't we start off by telling the members of the jury what the charging document looked like in this case and what was a quick synopsis from uh, the prosecutor's point of view as to what the case was looking like? Well, uh, this was well, there was only one charge on this complaint. Um, it was a strike offense. And for your audience that might not know, a strike just comes with more severity. Obviously, it can be used against you to punish you more harshly in the future. When a person is charged with a strike, I think defense attorneys also move a little more cautiously before making, you know, allowing or making big decisions with their client about what to do in the case. In this particular case, my client had minimal criminal history, almost nothing. And so he was fortunate enough to not have to not have the pressure of consequence that other people might have, for example, maybe substantial prison time that he was looking at. Um, no matter the outcome, it was very likely he'd probably be put on probation and and you know that's that it means big stuff to our clients. Um, so I don't want to minimize that, but he wasn't looking at um, I think anything that was so severe or that we would consider as defense attorneys severe. Well, I know that right away when trying to digest a felony offense that as a lawyer, you first and foremost think of the potential repercussions. A felony in and of itself, that type of conviction could have so many collateral consequences from the inability to vote, losing public assistance, and you name it. It could go on from there. And and you also mentioned the fact of it being a strike offense, which which would definitely raise eyebrows because that, if convicted, that could have such a severe consequence on forwards because in our state that automatically could potentially double any future exposure on a felony case. So I know that this was approached with the utmost professionalism uh, and severity, and so. Why don't we move into the first element and layer of the jury trial, which would be the motions in limine. What were some of the big evidentiary, if any, battles that you were facing to start off the trial? Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to take you back just one step. And before the preliminary hearing, um, which in felony cases is the hearing where the witnesses potentially first testify, which is where officers testify. It's and everyone is under oath and you can use those statements at a jury trial later. Right before that hearing, the district attorney felt that they could not prove that the strike offense they had charged my client with. And the case was amended um, to be a non-strike offense of assault with force likely to cause great bodily injury. So prior to the prelim, we basically already had a win before even actually moving forward with the prelim. And then, uh, so then cut to the trial, uh, motions in limine. There were, this was a very straightforward case, spoiler alert, my client punched someone in the face once, and this was just completely undisputed. So I was not expecting to have many evidentiary issues at all. But the night before we were supposed to answer up for trial, 
the prosecutor emailed me that she was turning over, said she would be turning over an expert statement. That's typical in a DUI case, in cases with drugs where you have toxicologists, or if someone's been injured, maybe to the point that um, a doctor or a medical examiner must be called. But in this case, I didn't see anywhere where an expert might be relevant. I opened the statement and the statement was from the police officer in my case. And the prosecutor wanted to proffer him as an expert in jujitsu, in hand-to-hand combat, in karate. And I was just completely confused. I had no clue why any of this would be necessary. And, you know, it's hard to explain a little bit why she why she thought that was necessary or appropriate. But I immediately wrote a motion in lemonade that I added to my already written one asking to exclude any evidence that this police officer was an expert. And that's such a tough position to be in because experts can impact a case with such significant value. And to learn about that potential testimony the night before trial has to be, imagine, frustrating and just difficult to deal with. Did When that aspect of the disclosure, the fact that it came, you know, on this eve of trial, did that have any impact in the actual in limine motion? I don't think so. The judge, as we often see things, evidence being dropped on us on the eve of anything doesn't really, isn't really compelling for a judge. Um, The remedy is that we can continue the case if we have a if they think we have a compelling answer and that's kind of it. So I didn't really harp on that too much because I knew that that part of the argument that it was a late disclosure of discovery that I was getting it the night before. Um, I just really wasn't going to move the ball as much as completely discrediting this evidence. And in the arguments for that in lemonade motion, how did that end up ruling go? It went well. I Something that was probably a takeaway, something that I would remind people or teach any student if I had them is that whoever, whoever has presented something to a judge first is going to immediately have a leg up on whoever is responding second. And in this case, there was no motion written by the prosecutor to justify why this police officer should be considered an expert. And from that point, when the judge read my motion, it seemed like she was a little bit on her heels, having to climb up a little bit of a mountain to justify why this would be relevant or necessary in this case. At the end of it, the judge ended up reserving on the ruling, I believe. And um, actually, you know what? I'm not sure. (laughs) 
I, at the end of it, I felt like I won. <laughs> so he either reserved with a strong indication that this was not going to be admitted, or he said that it wasn't going to be admitted. So I was no longer focused on that. And I was focused on the other um, legal issues that came up during our in lemonade motions. Hey, when we're in trial, sometimes the only thing we have to rely on are our feelings. You know, that's what trial <laughs> psychosis is. And so, you know, as long as, you know, you felt that way and it ultimately worked out that way, I think, you know, success, bam, we did it. So congratulations on that. Um, you know, you also said some things that reminded me that um, I, you know, I think it's important to let our audience know that uh, Marleta is, in fact, an adjunct trial professor. And one of the things that she just said triggered, you know, you said if you could teach um, any, you know, potential student, law student, or even newer attorney something, um, it would have been that advice to, you know, get the first word in. And I 100% agree with that. Um, you know, now that we've kind of gotten through the motion in limine and we're actually on the actual cusp of starting the, the actual jury trial, as a as a trial advocate professor, what's one of the first things that you yourself, you need to have prepared for? You know, with me, I always really like to start with my closing. You know, other people like to potentially start with, you know, the investigation phase. You know, where where do you see the, the optimal starting point when diving into a case that you know is now going to trial? Mine is a very fluid process. I generally start with the main, the person I perceive to be the main witness in the case, I start with their cross-examination. But as I'm preparing, you'll see I have 10 tabs open. One says closing, one says opening, one, you know, one, there's one for every witness is open. And then, um, then I have this sheet called case summary. And that's where anything else that doesn't fall into any of those categories goes. Because I think a lot of attorneys can relate to this. You're working on one thing and then you have a, you think it's a genius idea for another part of your case. And there, and you don't want to lose that thought. So this is my way of dumping all of those things into other areas. I also really it's almost like being a an orchestra conductor. You're trying to make sure that all of these parts of the case are going to fit together in a way that neatly wraps up in a bow in your closing at the end. So sure, when I'm writing my cross for this main witness, I'm impeaching them, but there are multiple ways to impeach someone. Impeachment is when you are showing that a piece of testimony is actually inaccurate or maybe not inaccurate, but that it was said differently a different way at a different time, and now it's inconsistent. And you can't just do that in a cross. You have you are sometimes impeaching one witness with another witness's statement and when i come across that question i then have i then open the other document for that other witness and type out the question that i want to make sure i ask them to establish that impeachment so 
I don't know how other people do it, but that's the best way I've come up with so that I don't lose sleep at night, that I've missed any detail in the case. I think it's important to highlight that everyone is going to have their own own styles and, and strategies. And it, I think it's just important to me personally. I always like hearing different people's styles and strategies and ultimately then form formulating my own. And so um, I think that is super great insight and very helpful that, you know, there are ways to have more or less organized scatterbrain, I think is a, is a fair way to, to categorize that. Well, that's super exciting. And we're, we're going to be fortunate enough to see how that uh, prep work played out in this case. So we've confirmed for trial. We we've done the motions in limine. We've, we've picked the jury. Um, we, we have our matter to the box with our, with our jurors. Can, can you give our audience a, a insight into the opening statements, how the, well, I guess, what was the difference in, the point of views for, of the case between yours and the prosecution's? From my perception, the prosecution's theory was my client is just was just this belligerent, angry, crazy person that didn't, that had no regard for people and and they didn't really have an explanation for why he was that wh- why they thought he was that way and it, and that was really reflected i thought throughout the trial and i haven't really said the facts of the case yet is that not appropriate is that appropriate at this time or no I think that would be a great time. I know that's where, you know, real jurors would probably, this would be the f- opportunity where they first heard the first glimpse of the facts. And so, yeah, I think that would, this is a great time to just, you know, what were the facts of the case that the pros- prosecution highlighted? And, you know, what were the areas in your opening where you felt like facts that you needed to highlight? So the prosecution's version was that my, it's 11 o'clock at night, my client co- um, comes up to this parking lot, this church parking lot. And start screaming at this random couple um, who was older. They were in their, uh, I think they were in their 60s. And he starts screaming at them saying that they are making a lot of noise and that they are disturbing his dogs and that his dogs were losing their minds. And when my client loses his shit, for lack of a better word, he pushes this complaining witness, um, the gentleman, and then punches him in the face, punches this guy in the face and offers no other reason than what I just said. The, this gentleman's wife was there. Both of them were visiting. They had, um, driven down, driven down to this parking lot from a different region and parked their RV very in this parking lot that butts up against my client's home. And that's where supposedly all of this noise was made that disturbed him. And then this random bystander is closing up the church and sees only a part of the events, but sees the part where my client punches this gentleman. And because the gentleman was older than my client by 30 years, 40 years, he assumed, um, and this came out later in the trial, that it was just sort of an assumption that this, uh, this complaining witness 
would be the one to need help or would be the one to need protection. And that comes out in a little more detail like later out in the trial. So after the prosecution lays out the facts that your big behemoth of a, of a client basically just decked an older guy, what do you focus on right away in the opening statement to try to reshape the juror's mind, to let them to get that violent you know, visual that I'm sure was potentially established, you know, how do, how do we, how do we break that? Which by the way, Lucas is using the word behemoth, not because he thinks my client was a behemoth, but because the prosecutor decided to use that word many times to describe my client. (laughs) Um, When in fact, he was basically the same height as the complaining witness. (laughs) That's a tangent. Uh, And so she used that word in her opening, the prosecutor did. Uh, And in my opening, I actually highlighted that the complaining witness and my client were the same height. They were actually around the same kind of weight. And I just told the story that my client eventually testified to which is that he thought this complaining witness had a weapon, was going to injure him, and that's why he punched the uh, complaining witness. And the facts that I highlighted, which the prosecutor did touch on them, but uh, were not um, told in the way that I told the story, which was a crazy story that my client did come out because they were the parking of this RV right behind my client's home did actually cause his dogs to lose their minds. It's 11 PM at night. My client did come out and he did uh, try to talk to them and then ended up yelling at them. And I'll save a couple of the details for later on, but after this altercation, this argument that started it all, the complaining witness walks back to his truck, grabs a pair of Smith & Wesson handcuffs, walks back towards my client in this parking lot, and then that's when my client punches him. And the handcuffs is what my client perceived to be uh, some sort of weapon, a knife, a gun. Um, and because of the parking lot circumstances, the lighting, uh, you know, other things in this parking lot, he believed that the complaining witness was armed and dangerous. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's just the story I told in probably a better way than I'm telling it right now. <laughs> Well, that just goes to, like they said, that the theme of the show, I think it, it just is such a reinforcement of how important storytelling is. You know, it sounded just from that small synopsis, it sounds like we have the prosecution basically laying out facts in a story in a way that says, you know, we're going to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that we have this man who would, you know, and, you know, would be perceived as a behemoth or, or and this is aggro ultra aggressive guy who is seeking to beat up elderly people within you know 
just almost the same breath and you come up and say, well, it's actually two guys who are the same size and there was a bunch of other stuff that happened, which included the guy trying to put, he's, you know, not a cop, but trying to put him in handcuffs. So, uh, what a, what a difference of opening statements. I'm sure that, uh, I'm really excited to get into the factual examinations to see then how each of you try to accomplish that story. So why don't we move right ahead into the prosecution's case in chief? Um, what were some of the witnesses that they called to rely on and where did you think they uh, spend a lot of their primary focus? The primary focus that I could tell before we ever even answered up for trial was going to be how severe the injuries were, which it was crazy because that was really not at issue at all. But there were so many pictures of the injuries um, at different angles. And it's and the pictures were shown to every single witness, even if that witness wasn't adding anything new. And, you know, I think that misses the mark that I didn't address the injuries at all. I had conceded those right out the gate and um, to spend so much time on something that just to me did not, was not relevant and did not assert, did not rebut what the actual issue was in this case to me was a lot of time distracting the jury from the actual issue. But the th- the witnesses they called were the complaining witness, his wife, a, that lay witness, a random person who was closing up that church, and then the police officer that responded to the scene. Did they have to call any of the any kind of medical personnel in order to like get in deeper with the pictures, or were they able to just lay the foundation to admit the pictures with the victim themselves? Well, the severity of the injuries wasn't at issue. There wasn't actually anything that had to be proved to show it was, for example, great bodily injury. I think the element is only serious and it doesn't require an expert. Everybody had seen this complaining witness that night. So they were able to say, yes, I saw this person. Yes, this is a, this photo is an accurate reflection of what he looked like that night and of what the injury looked like. The details of what the injury was or like how maybe underneath how deep it, how deep or not deep it was just that none of that was really addressed at all because it wasn't at issue. And it sounded like the prosecution had a a decent amount of witnesses. Were they able to get through all of their case in chief in a day or was it something that kind of took them a couple of days to get through? They got through all of their witnesses in a little over a half of a day. Wow. This trial was done in one day. I mean, and I'm sorry, I shouldn't say this trial. All of the witness testimony and my case in chief was done in one day. And that was shocking because I was not expecting for it to go that quickly. Yeah, that sounds like just a lot to process. I mean, five different witnesses, all of the information that they're spewing during the examinations to then quickly have to turn that around uh, for your purposes of closings had to be a a very tough battle. And we'll have to hear how, how you were able to manage that. 
So if they spent, you know, very little times on their witnesses, how did, did that impact your crosses? Did you did you feel like sometimes that maybe your crosses went longer than their directs because you were, you know, having to pin down and do a little bit more focusing? No, I because they spent so because the prosecutor spent such little time on the examinations and the things that I thought they were going to spend time on, I ended up cutting out pages of my cross examinations for most of these witnesses. And I should go back and say, when I was deciding the main, the main points I wanted to bring out to the jury, and especially in he said, he said, or he said, she said, or they said, they said cases, you, to me, uh, you want to focus on bias, memory, perception, lack of investigation, what corroborating evidence is there for either side. And it's just like a really basic, it's really basic things to look at, but that really help guide and focus your examinations, direct or cross. And it favored my case how inconsistent everyone's statements were from each other. The complaining witness said that my client walked through the parking lot and approached him first. The complaining witness's wife said that his her own husband, the complaining witness, approached my client first. The random bystander didn't didn't see that set of events at all. The random bystander didn't see the complaining witness come out with handcuffs, but the complaining witness admitted to police that he did grab handcuffs to come and approach my client. So it was just, these are examples of just what a mess what a mess these testimonies were. And instead of trying to clarify and pinpoint and, you know, resolve these inconsistencies, it favored my case to leave it as messy as possible. Because in the end, what you're asking the jury to do is to determine if the evidence supports uh, supports the charge, supports the prosecution's theory more, or supports mine more. And if the prosecution has done nothing to uh, to ameliorate those inconsistencies, to resolve those inconsistencies, then they haven't met their burden. And then that's why you find my client not guilty. And so um, I relied on that stuff later on in closing to to argue that. Yeah, I might be giving away one of my trade secrets here, but I I no- notoriously say like the more inconsistencies there are, the more doubt there is. Because like what other thing can inconsistencies produce besides doubt? So, um that's always great when when you're able to have that, especially 
in like you said, he said versus he said cases or uh, cases that really call into question what that initial narrative and story of the case is. And so, you know, fantastic job for you to be able to highlight those inconsistencies. You know, let me ask you this, because one of the things that I think is pretty fair that I've established in, in so far the member in our podcast, especially in the jury trial episodes, is that you're 100% going to have a what the fuck moment uh, in a jury trial or be surprised by something. And I think usually that happens, you know, most oftentimes in the prosecution's case in chief, just because very seldomly as defense attorneys do I think we put on our own cases in chief. And so by the time that you got, we'll say to the, about the midway part of the trial, was there anything that surprised you at that point? No, my, what the fuck moment happened in my case in chief. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Um, and I don't know if you want to go back. I do. I do want to say something about the way the complaining witness testified. Yeah, let's hear it. In case the audience hasn't figured out yet, my defense was self-defense. And the difficulty in sometimes getting the jury to be on board with your story or your version of events or that your client was actually fearful is prove is finding some way to corroborate that the complaining witness was actually threatening in some way. And if you are the alleged victim of a crime, typically you're not going to come out there and admit that you were aggressive or you were, you know, you yourself yelled at the person. And so this is the part where I think a lot of strategy and, you know, good legal action is necessary to be able to get a way to paint that picture, um, sometimes without your client's testimony and, and still have a jury see it. And with this complaining witness, he had made one statement of the preliminary hearing. So it's under oath already. It's on paper, him confronting him with it in the cross-examination And that statement was, I did everything I could to de-escalate this situation. And I was like, when I heard him say that at the preliminary hearing, I was like, that's total bullshit. (laughs) Who grabs handcuffs and goes and arrests someone because they, you know, that's just, no, that's not not true. (laughs) Right. So I used that and in my trial and I just said, wouldn't you agree walking away from a situation would be a way to deescalate it? And he said, no. And I said, wouldn't you agree that you could have walked back to your vehicle and gotten in? No. Wouldn't you agree it was an option to sit in your vehicle and call the police if you thought this person was threatening. That was not an option at this time. And you can just see where this is going. I took every single step that he took and asked him whether he had the option to walk away or if there were other options that he could do to make himself safe. And the answer was no every time. And he didn't he didn't get aggressive with me. He was very charming on direct. He was also like 
still very polite on cross, but very terse, very like at one point he said to me, yeah, you asked me that like five times at the preliminary hearing. And I was like, oh, you're right. I did. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) So um, he, you know, he just tell he was annoyed with me and thankfully that was enough for the jury to say, to see, you know, who he was. He also made a comment at the end, which I just, this is the comment I sat on. I sat down on and finished my examination, even though my, I wasn't done with my questions. He said, uh, I guess I just finally met my match. And I thought that that was just such a off the cuff concession that this is something he does regularly or that, you know, not handcuffing people necessarily, but confronting people, um, you know, this is type of behavior. And that's the question I think I sat down on because I, I said, if the jury doesn't get the point at this point, they're just not going to get it. So that's what I ended You just highlighted something so important too, especially in this type of dynamic where it's, you know, two regular people, civilians, lay people, right? This isn't an interaction between some of our client and the cop where we have body worn camera to really compare the the story to what's in the report. And so I think you are a hundred percent right that their demeanor as it is reflecting on the situation can be a huge tell as to how they were actually acting in that situation. And so for you to be able to highlight some uneasiness or some, you know, statements like you did as it related to reflecting on this situation, I think that you, you 100% did what you needed to do. And, you know, you, that calls into question, you know, like you said, one of the big reasons why we do that is to potentially highlight our our client's story without necessarily having to risk them actually testifying. Now, you mentioned that, you know, the prosecution had gone through their witnesses. Sounds like that was a huge win for you during your cross-examination. Was there any other big wins that you would say uh, that you got during your cross-examinations? Not really. I think I just exposed, as I mentioned before, those inconsistencies with the other witnesses, the bystander, the guy who was closing up the church, he actually said he didn't see the handcuffs. He was facing my client when the complaining witness was walking back towards my client. And this guy, this random guy was just standing in between them, trying to cool them both off, but he couldn't see the complaining witness anymore behind him. And he said, the best thing that came out is that he said that my client looked scared for a second. And I ended up cutting out a lot of what I was going to ask him as well after he said that, um, because I just felt like that was enough. That's all I needed for, for closing. Uh, I will, there was also a win, not necessarily during the case in chief, but the complaining witness was wearing this make America great again hat. I don't, um, he was wearing this hat and during this interaction and I don't like to polarize the jurors 
even if it might be advantageous, um, and by that I mean that if you're trying to go for a hang, meaning that instead of trying to go for a full-on acquittal and you think that maybe the best you're going to get is a, a hung jury, which results in a mistrial and maybe your case gets dismissed, maybe it doesn't, maybe you just have to try it all over again. I, I just, I think that not polarizing jurors is probably a really good rule of thumb. <laughs> but I, and so I didn't want to make a big to-do about this hat, right? I didn't know where my, how my jurors, politi- where, they're, where they lie politically, but I felt felt like people liberal people or associate that hat with aggressiveness, with maybe violence, with a lot of other things, um, whether that's, you know, right or not, or whether people feel that that's right or not. But I felt that it was really important because it corroborated some of my client's version of events. And because there were three witnesses testifying against my client, four witnesses against my client, and my client is the only one telling his story, I really felt like that piece of evidence was necessary to corroborate some of the things he was saying. And so I I told you before that I toiled over this for hours. I talked to so many people. How am I going to get this hat in to evidence? Because I could... When I'm looking at a case, I am thinking of every way I can get something in or every way I can keep something out and then the opposite. So I already know the arguments people are going to make before they make them if I've done my job. In this case, I could see a million reasons why you would argue to keep out this hat if I were a prosecutor. And there are a million reasons why if I were a judge, you know, I would agree that it should maybe stay out or not. In the end, the win happened before we answered up for trial. And in the prosecutor's packet of exhibits was this picture of the uh, complaining witness in the hat. And it never came up. And I removed it from my motions in limine. And it came out all through trial. And she showed that picture a million times. And uh, so that was, to me, one of the best, best, like biggest wins without having to do much at all. I think you did a great job of, again, showing your skill set as a storyteller because a, a good telltale sign of a good storyteller is them knowing their audience. And for you, after doing your jury uh, voir dire, to have that kind of feeling that that could play a significance, not, not not just to you, but to your audience, which in this case was your jury, that that's huge insight. And I think it also goes to show your skill set of being a good trial advocate, especially during the cross-examinations, to not fall into some of the easy traps of asking the one question too many or knowing exactly when you got your main piece of evidence and to get out of there. Because, you know, quite frankly, I think juries love short cross-examinations as long as they're short, sweet, and to the point when we could do that. So that sounds like some just outstanding advocacy. What I'm super interested in is what you had alluded to a couple minutes ago, which is that your what the fuck moment happened during your your case in chief. And uh, uh, it's interesting on two parts because one, it's a what the fuck moment, which is always interesting to hear and how one overcomes them. And two is that you actually had a case in chief in this case. And so explain to our jurors who are listening uh, about that situation. My client, I think I mentioned this before he did testify. And it was actually during his cross-examination. So the prosecutor was cross 
examining him. And she starts to ask about officers going to my client's home, officers trying, and my client's refusal to let officers into his home, my client's refusal to speak to police, which it's just as a defense attorney, like red flag, red flag. You have our our client's rights are so obliterated all the time that constitutional rights that they do have or the rights, you know, encompassed within those rights, which is that you do have the right to tell the government, no, they can't come into your home. And they do have the right to remain silent. They have. So to hear those things, I was like, I guess, what the fuck? (laughs) And I had never seen this happen in a trial. So I just, I, when I started to see where it was headed, I objected, but I don't remember what I initially said because I wasn't sure what to the proper term to use for the objection. And then when she went, flew into it, I just slammed my hand on the table and I said, objection, this like fifth amendment, you know, I just started shouting amendments like constitution and (laughs) the judge ended up asking, uh, having us do a sidebar where the prosecutor and I and the judge go and, and talk about the issue that's come up and, you know, decide what we're going to do. And so that was just, and, and, and so that was just, there were multiple issues that arose from that. I ended up spending so much time researching that issue after that day to make a proper record uh, later on. Uh, and it ended up actually eating time that I would have normally spent on my closing, which is a decision making thing that happens to us all the time during trial that you are forced to choose who, what to spend your time on. And it's a constant calculation of cost benefit, a cost benefit analysis, which one is going to reap me more reward, you know, later on. So that is what, that's what happened. You know, if I make it my whole career without actually saying objection, this is bullshit. Um, I'll be really impressed because yeah, sometimes the words and the legal jargon just doesn't come to you and you just have to object with, with your gut feeling and your emotion. So I totally have been there and uh, fortunately haven't actually uh, gone through with it, but uh, we'll be surprised if, if it doesn't happen. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you was, uh, what, was there any other evidence that you introduced in your case in chief, or was it pretty much just your client's testimony? And how do you feel that that went? Just my client's testimony. He was so nervous, was so, so nervous, was so worried he was going to misremember things or get things wrong. And because he was, he was, asking me every day, am I going to go on today? Am I going to go on today? And, and as you know, I mean, all of this testimony happened in one day. So, I mean, he asked maybe the day we answered up for trial and then the day after motions, maybe the day after that, but I had trying to give him reassurance. I had looked at our timeline and I was just like, there is no way he's going to testify before this day. So I kept telling him that. 
And of course, which I don't know why I said that, you never say no way. That's the number one rule. I I have no clue why I said that. And of course, the universe spited me and, you know, it happened a day earlier so that he was even more anxious because of that. And, uh, but overall, even though the anxiousness came out and even though, you know, it felt like, I felt like it could have gone, our direct could have gone better. Ultimately, he told his story the way that, you know, he had told it to police, eventually told it to police on that day, the way he wanted to tell it. And it just came off as I thought genuine. So, so I thought, I thought he did really well. Um, but I'm the queen of critical. Everything could have gone better always. So, <laughs> Well, it's always a scary feeling because, yeah, you, you always fear that, you know, your client might do something similar to, you know, the reporting party and, and give them some type of interpretation of his actions being aggressive or, or misconstrued. But, you know, it's really important in these type of cases that, you know, I think both sides are are heard if they can be. Um, and so it sounds like, you know, we, we, we made our way through the prosecution case in chief, and it sounds like that was the end of your case in chief. Would you explain to the members of the jury, basically, what did you feel as you were arguing during your closing argument? What was the biggest challenge that you were overcoming? And, and what were some of your primary points that you were trying to highlight based on the evidence that you were able to get out during the trial? Honestly, the greatest obstacle had nothing to do with evidence or anything like that. It was that I hadn't gotten to prepare in the way that I normally try to prepare to. I also think the way I prepare is incredibly unrealistic for trial. I will write out a, I'll make a PowerPoint then I'll write all any notes that I think should go under each slide. Then I'll print out all the slides. Then I'll tape them all up on my wall on, in my office. And then I will memorize, not memorize, but then I'll go through the way I want to say things. And then I move slides around on my wall. And then I, and you can just see where this is going to, I'm not going to bore everybody with like every single detail, but basically by the time I get to closing, I am off notes. I memorize. It is a little masterpiece of a closing. And I didn't get to do that at all because of that issue that had come up. I spent so much time on that because I wanted to make a good record because if my client was found guilty, I thought there was a potential for two appealable issues. And I ended up not being memorized. I was relying a lot on my notes, but I also hate to do that. I like to talk to the jury organically. So it just, it was coming out in a way, which if you edit me well, no one will be able to tell I do this, but it was basically like, I felt like it was very disorganized and I didn't get out all the points I wanted to get out. But in the end, I, in law school, I had a mock trial coach tell me, or someone said, you know, you cross for show and you close for dough. And maybe that's a, (laughs) me too. It tells you where to spend your time. And I had done the work on cross 
I knew that my points had come across and I think I did a decent enough job in my closing to tie all of those things together. Um, So I didn't feel like I was combating a bunch of bad information. The prosecutor spent a lot of time, like she did most of the trial, which was putting up the photos of the injuries multiple times. And I mean, she definitely talked about why there were reasons not to believe my client, but not, it just didn't, I didn't think it was very strong. Obviously I'm very biased, but uh, it was a lot about the injuries and, and, and some of the inconsistencies in my client statement as well, but mostly about the injuries. It was very aggressive, very, just very aggressive And I took the opposite approach in mind because I saw how hot she was coming in and how her tone and her demeanor and all of that. I completely went the opposite way. And I've heard you talk about this in other episodes about being the most reasonable person in the room. And that was just my goal the entire trial. But I even took it up one notch in my closing and I even had my a colleague, he came to watch me and he said he was said he was shocked at how soft my tone was, at how almost like quiet, but he said he could hear me clearly, but almost how like quiet or you know, just it was so such a contrast from her that you know it it took him aback. So and and I think that ended up helping a little bit in the end. Honestly, it sounds like it's a little subliminal messaging too as to like the actual encounter or or at least the way that it was being perceived that the one who again was the reporting party who set up the initial narrative in the framework tried to present himself as the cool common collective one but then wasn't the case uh during the trial and it sounds like you know the district attorney might have uh unfortunately resembled that whereas you being able to remain cool calling collective gave you a little bit more credibility and in that space and in the argument so again that's a fantastic job um you know i think we've alluded to what the outcome was going to be since we've talked about all of the fantastic lawyering that you've done but uh just for those who uh, haven't quite maybe grasped it what was the verdict that the jury returned in this case it was a not guilty we love hearing those. <laughs> and, you know, it's just been uh, a fantastic. And, and honestly, that is such a, a just and, and great outcome. I mean, to hear in this case that we are, we're starting at someone who is basically at their home, who felt being disturbed at their home. And next thing they know, they're looking at a felony and a strike offense uh, is just a crazy world that we can live in. And I try to tell people all the time when, when they hear felony convictions like, People think it's just the hardest thing in the world to to get and, and that you you have to be some type of career criminal in order to even possibly get into the realm of a felony conviction. And that's not the case. Everyday people living everyday lives, just defending themselves are can be unfortunately faced with these situations. And so uh, I just want to give you a lot of kudos. It sounds like a, a stress-worthy case, but ultimately you got that fantastic result. So Congratulations to you. You know, here on Members of the Jury, we always like to end the show in the same way. And, and that's, we get to ask our guests, and I'm actually going to start adding a little wrinkle to this question. After taking this matter to the box, what was something you would say you either learned 
Or what is your why for taking matters to the box? I think the why to taking something to the box is the same why I think our job in general is so important. And it has to do with power. Power can be used for good. It can be used for evil. But what we see is that when power remains unchecked, then it is a slippery slope to that power being used for evil, power abusing, you know, whoever is on the other end. I think the framers of our great country and constitution recognized that when they created things like checks and balances, when they wrote our clients' rights into the constitution and, or is it the bill of rights? Put the right one in there when you edit this. (laughs) And we are the people who check the government. You know, I do think government is good. I think they provide a lot of good public service, but you cannot let unfettered power run amok because then people aren't produced for hearings. And next thing you know, they're found guilty without ever having seen a courtroom or there's not 12 jurors. And it's an incredibly important component of our society. And it's a great privilege to take those who get to go to trial because there are many people who the consequences are too great for them to risk going to trial and often make the decision not to do so when they shouldn't be judged for that at all. But it is very lucky the person who gets to take a case to trial and, and to not be punished greatly for doing so. I couldn't agree more Marlena. Uh, and, and I actually thought what you said was really beautiful I think the the irony in, in what we do is that it is 100% in our nature to serve as a check and balance. I mean, we as public defenders or deputy public defenders are employed by the government to fight against the government. And so uh, it's a beautiful irony that I know that you love to partake in as well do I. And uh, we're super thankful that you were able to take this matter to the box. And thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing the story with us. members of the jury that's our show and i rest my case be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box if you're a fan of the show go ahead and subscribe you can also find us on social media at members of the jury if you want to be a guest or have any feedback be sure to email us at lhursty at members of the jury information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.